0: Hi, it's Fraser here. If you're a regular listener to this podcast or a regular reader of Spiked, I hope you'll agree that Spiked's message is more necessary than ever. Spiked's content is free and it always will be. It's thanks to your donations and regular donations in particular that we've been able to keep going and growing. By donating to Spiked, you're helping us challenge the myriad attacks on free speech and the illiberalism of identity politics. The Spike podcast has now grown to a point where we're able to get sponsorship. What that means for you is that there's another way you can support the show by checking out some of the deals we're able to pass your way. But donations are still by far the best and most direct way to support us. So if you think we're doing something right, saying what needs to be said, challenging what needs to be challenged, then do please consider starting a regular donation if you haven't already. Even £5 per month can go a long way. If you'd like to make a donation, you can do that by going to spikes onlinecom and hitting the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spikes onlinecom and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week, as ever, we have Spiked deputy editor Tom Slater Hello. and Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, self-censorship the second wave blame game, and people with cervixes. Americans say they are afraid to speak their minds.
1: 62% of Americans say they have political views they're afraid to share. A new report suggest that people are having to self-censor or face discrimination. Right-wing academics have been forced to hide
2: their views. Every form of diversity is championed, apart from the most important one, which is viewpoint diversity
0: two new pieces of research point to a worrying climate of self-censorship. A report by the Cato Institute found that 62% of Americans think that the political climate these days prevents them from saying things they believe because others might find them offensive. And this is not just a problem for the right. Most liberals and moderates also feel that they need to self-censor. Around a third of conservatives, liberals and moderates feel that they could miss out on job opportunities if their views became known. In the UK, a report this week from Policy Exchange found a significant chilling effect on speech in academia. Around a third of right-leaning academics feel they have to censor their political views in teaching and research, while 15% of left-leaning academics feel the same. The study also found high levels of discrimination for job opportunities based on political beliefs. Tom, what are your thoughts on this?
2: Well, I think it demonstrates what we already know in many respects, insofar as the power of self-censorship and how it feels like it's been growing in recent years. This is something which people who've been interested in freedom of speech have been talking about for a very long time, of course. You know, in On Liberty by John Stuart Mill, he talks about the despotism of custom and the tyranny of the prevailing opinion and feeling, and this this way in which that just society in general or a culture of a particular institution can impose a kind of informal censorship on us by encouraging us to self-censor to not say what it is that we actually believe, and how that's in many respects so much more insidious than other forms of kind of more tangible censorship, insofar as it's a kind of tyranny that you impose on you I thought the research was really fascinating. I think it is striking, as you say, that this isn't purely an issue of the rights, although it does seem to affect them disproportionately. Um, I thought it was interesting that even though in the Cato survey, people who were very left or very liberal in their categories were least likely to suggest that they did self-censor, there was still a huge jump from 2017 in relation to self-censorship. Similarly, with the policy exchange survey of academics pointing out whilst again people who were more left-wing tended not to self-censor as much you're seeing a huge jump largely in relation to gender critical views which i think Mm. as we've all seen with the selena todd case and all these other academics being physically hounded in some respects for expressing those kinds of opinions we can see how firm that is nevertheless i think it's quite clear that there is a distribution of this and it's quite obvious that people who do consider themselves left-wing whether they are or not (laughs) we can kind of discuss are far less concerned about this. And I think it's there's a kind of striking point in all of this, which is the fact that the casualness with which a lot of people on the left treat the issue of censorship, they're very dismissive of self-censorship as a concept. Uh, They're very comfortable with corporate censorship, whether it's Facebook or anyone else. They'd be the first to defend forms of state censorship in relation to hate speech. And one of the things that I think, particularly these surveys have demonstrated, particularly in relation to the academy, is that one of the things that shows is that they are the establishment in various different parts of society. You know, they they exert direct power in relation to cultural institutions, they run universities, they run things like the BBC but even in other spheres of life, you know, even though the the left, you know, they, they're not in power in Britain and in many other parts of the West they still do kind of set the agenda on a lot of these cultural issues. You know, we read over the weekend that Boris Johnson is planning to shelve um, plans to reform the gender recognition Act because he's concerned about opening up that culture war, that piece of legislation Legislation Again, being put forward by Conservatives in the first place. And of course, even the kind of corporate sector, as we've seen with all the kind of, you know, woke pronouncements that they've made in recent weeks in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement, are very comfortable with their kind of speech policing agenda of the left, largely, I think, because their identity concerns uh, over class concerns, which the modern left is, is kind of replaced one for the other, suits their interests perfectly. So I think it's just, it kind of demonstrates as well that the reason I think so many people on the left are either dismissive of forms of censorship or claim that they're justified is purely because the, f- the fact that they do hold sway over these discussions. They're, they feel that they're unlikely to be censored by these kinds of processes. And I think that shows, on the one hand, a remarkable level of naivety on their part, because once you create these mechanisms, there's no saying where that will end up. I think a lot of gender-critical feminists who weren't particular free speech absolutists, shall we say, until recently have started to recognise that. But I think it also demonstrates that despite the fact these people, you know, like to pose as really radical and challenging and anti-establishment, they are the establishment in so many respects. And I think their lack of support for free speech is an illustration of that
1: fact.
0: And I think it's it's interesting recently, you know, when the left has dismissed complaints about cancel culture, one of the kind of go-to arguments is to say, well, it's only powerful people who care about cancel culture. It's only people with platforms who are complaining about criticism. And, you know, this recent research completely explodes that myth because it is ordinary people working in ordinary jobs who feel they have to self-censor their views and it goes across the political spectrum as well it's it's not about what might be dismissed as hateful views or right-wing views it's it's moderate views too that people feel that they cannot air that's you know one of the most important things to recognize is that the threat to free speech is universal and all around us. It affects all political persuasions and affects people from all walks of life. Ella?
1: We already knew that universities were somewhat out of touch with the rest of society. I mean, the Brexit debate has revealed that and the fact that universities were so thoroughly in support of Remain and academics were almost exclusively Remain supporting while the majority of the rest of the country voted to leave and I think you see that kind of whether it's elitism or whether it's kind of sense of being out of touch reflected certainly in the study by policy exchange even with some of the petty things which just kind of made me laugh but also were quite serious you know about only half of those surveyed would sit next to someone who voted leave at lunch Mm -hmm. and that dropped to 37 percent who would sit next to someone who was had a view that was supportive of gender critical feminists. So, you know, you might snigger at that, but actually it does reflect a more serious thing, which is that even on the ground at university, it feels like there is a much more problematic sense of not just censorship, but as Tom says, self-censorship, where people are worried about coming out. as I can't count the amount of times students have said to me, I can't say that I'm a Leave voter on this campus as if it's admitting that you've got a tail or something, rather than it being a legitimate political position. But the issue is how do you deal with it? And there are some things in the the policy exchange report which are, let's say, interesting. I mean, the fact that they make a big noise about more universities being left-leaning, as they quote, I get frustrated by that because it's sort of irrelevant what political leaning in the university is. If you're a political person, you should go and make your voice heard. And even if it means being the outsider as, you know, some of us were at university. I particularly was when I went to Sussex on some occasions. But the more important thing is this academic freedom bill that they suggest, which I don't know about you guys, but when you're thinking about how to deal with the issue of free speech in university, anything that's makes gestures of being, you know, something that's enforced by parliament makes the, <laughs> makes my hair stand on end. Because if you remember back, there have been attempts to do this kind of thing before. I mean, most infamously and embarrassingly, just after the Brexit vote happened, the conservative MP, Chris Heaton Harris sent that letter out to universities demanding that they list all their professors who were involved in European studies to make sure that there was enough Brexit supportive professors at university. And it's just such a ridiculous thing to do. But in trying to enforce a sense of freedom at university, you inevitably put constraints around it. And actually, I think what Spikes has always argued is that the approach to this has to be a. A hands-off one which says strip back all of the policies that you've got however tangible at the moment you know things that you don't think infringe upon freedom of speech like zero tolerance to harassment policies within students unions all those kind of things that encroach upon how students and academics can go about their intellectual lives at universities should be stripped back and universe that allows university to be a genuine free space i don't fully believe that the idea that we could leave the task of fighting for freedom in the hands of parliament, even if they are sympathetic to this crisis of censorship on campus, because they've never got that actually the essence of freedom of speech and academic freedom has to be a a total independence from any kind of enforcement.
2: Tom? Tom? No, I, I agree with that. And I've written several times, you can't really have a pro free speech or pro academic freedom crackdown. You know, it's a kind of, it's a contradiction in terms yeah. in many respects. <laughs> but one thing that I think is a lot of these proposals that the Tories have been putting out and some of them are reiterated and kind of built upon in this policy exchange report is the fact that we're in a kind of interesting situation. Whereas previously the issue of academic freedom being encroached upon would often be from without, you know, either it would be in terms of government or it would be in terms of donors. It discusses the kind of history of that. Whereas currently we have a kind of almost like an internal McCarthyism at these various institutions where it's the kind of culture and the policies and the power bases within these universities themselves which are you know setting the agenda, policing speech, leading the denunciation campaigns, etc. And that, I think, is is something which is is new and these are kind of quite clumsy responses, I think, in so many ways to respond to. And given the fact that, you know, you've got universities in receipt of state funds, etc, you can understand why their position is kind of becoming untenable, even if these particular proposals feel like they're not really going to do it. I think on on the question of how do you fight back against this more broadly? Andrew Doyle made this point on Spike this week, which is the fact that people do just need to be braver, really. And that's not an easy thing to say, because the level of vitriol that is directed your way in certain workplaces, on social media, when you dare to express a certain view, is very intense. I mean, intimidation, as Andrew points out, is basically one of the primary weapons of the kind of woke movement. It's something that they meet out very unashamedly. But I think the one thing that's worth recognising in relation to something self-censorship is that we are in a slightly curious position today, and maybe it's not so curious, I'm not sure, is the fact that when people like John Stuart Mill were talking about self-censorship and things of this nature, it was very much about the right to dissent from the majority often. The tyranny of the Mm. majority, as he would put it. He was obviously a huge anti-democrat, incidentally. Whereas we're in a quite strange position now where often it is the majority position which is demonised, whether it's the 52% who voted to leave or whether it's the vast majority of people who think that they're are men and there are women and that you can't chop and change in between. Those opinions are ones which are so hard to express. But I think that that should give us a little bit more steel in the sense that you are pushing back against a very angry, a very organised and a very intolerant minority but they are a minority of individuals these activists. Other people are on your side and I think the more and more people do pluck up the courage to say what it is that they believe, the more that I think we can make a lot of headway very quickly, because these are views that the vast majority of people want to espouse, including a belief in in free speech, which I think fundamentally far more people actually agree with than you would get the indication from a lot of the media and academic discussions around this issue.
0: One of the many things I love about the Great Courses Plus streaming service is that you get to learn from actual experts who know how to teach. The Great Courses Plus has real professors, people who have spent years studying in their field, and most importantly, people who know how to teach and engage with people. I'm still currently enjoying an economic history of the world since 1400. The course leader, Dr Donald Harold, draws on his fantastic expertise of the social and economic history of early modern Europe, and he presents everything you need to know in a really accessible way. I'm still really enjoying it nearly 30 lessons in. I've learned a great deal about our economic history – most recently about the rise of trade unions, Adam Smith's ideas about free trade and the birth of central banks. With a vast selection of subjects, The Great Courses Plus truly has something for everyone. You can learn to become a great writer, practice mindfulness or delve into astrophysics. And with The Great Courses Plus app, you can learn anytime, anywhere. It's so easy. I just love this streaming service. It's the perfect time now to try The Great Courses Plus. Right now, they have a limited time offer just for Spiked podcast listeners. An entire month of access for free. That's access to any and all of their courses for the next month, completely free. Don't wait any longer. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. Who will be to blame for a second wave of COVID-19 if one ever emerges? According to a recent YouGov poll, 52% of the public think that other members of the public will be to blame. In recent weeks, politicians have tried to point the finger at various sections of society. Nicola Sturgeon said seeing young people at pubs while not physically distant made her want to cry. Conservative MP Craig Whittaker blamed Muslims and ethnic minorities for the lockdown in the northwest. And throughout the lockdown the tabloids and the twitterati have screamed blue murder over people gathering in pubs, parks and beaches though none of this legal activity seems to have resulted in a more serious outbreak. Ella, what are your thoughts on this covid blame game?
1: <laughs> well, it's a not to keep rhyming but it's a shame it, it's shameful actually that the the results of this report because what it does is completely take all of the heat off of who really is responsible, which is the government and government policies. It's commonly known and accepted now that the deaths, the scandalous number of deaths in care homes was not just a sort of consequence of COVID unrelated to anything, but was directly linked to the way in which the NHS dealt with people going into care homes and policies in the government not being able to focus resources on where it was needed most. So when we're talking about who is to blame for the deaths of coronavirus or who is potentially to blame for this second wave that we are constantly being threatened with, it is not your average Joe who has no control over what happens in this country. It's the people who hold political power and who make the decisions. That just has to be clear. When it comes to the kind of way the public has acted, the most frustrating thing is that it seems the most ire has been saved not for people doing illegal things like, you know, all these kind of parties that were happening, mass parties that were happening in certain areas in London during lockdown and the small sporadic things where people were sort of, you could kind of argue, taking the piss, but where people have been not just allowed, but encouraged to go out, still there has been this residual kind of, oh, you selfish COVID idiots attitude. So even now that we've been told for weeks to get out there, go back to work, go see the beauty spots, eat out to help out, blah, blah, blah. Still, there's this sense of, as you mentioned in your article, Fraser, Nicola Sturgeon talking about how she wanted to cry seeing young people having a good time in a pub. (laughs) And the problem is, as you also mentioned, in relation to Susan Sontag, there's this bigger danger, I think, actually, I think more frightening than a sense of a further lockdown or a second wave, that the real infection becomes this sort of antisocial hostility that we have to each other, which is the perfect kind of situation for any government wishing to pass the buck. I never usually agree with Zoe Williams in The Guardian, but she wrote an article in relation to This week's sort of weird pronouncement about locking down the over 50s. You know, the news broke about it being discussed as a possibility and then was quickly shut down by government. But she actually made the point that it's these kind of accidental or not pronouncements and threats from the government of certain lockdowns, particularly ones of a generational nature, you know, picking on the over 50s that feeds a big problem that we've got today, which is hostility between one another, but also between the generations. There's a huge amount of both young and old bashing at the moment. It seems that the divides in the generation that we've often commented on seem to be becoming deeper throughout this pandemic, not becoming more closed. We've been talking about uh, solidarity a few months ago and trying to put a positive spin on it, but I actually think that the consequences of this lockdown have been quite dire when it comes to interpersonal relationships. So the public are not to blame, but you have to ask the question of why the public has not been duped, because I don't think publics can get duped, but why the public seems to be unwilling to shine the light on the government and and put more pressure on the government to say it's you that has to deal with these decisions and it's you that holds the blame.
2: Tom? No, I I agree with that. And I think one of the things that's been really unfortunate is that any discussion about government policy, the lockdown, how it was rolled out, the adverse consequences of it has been completely shrouded out by discussion of how much have we complied with the lockdown? How much have we complied with social distancing? That's become the whole frame of the discussion. And as a consequence of that, as we saw from that YouGov poll saying 52% of people would blame a second wave on other people, on the public fundamentally, is that it's just led to it to become almost entirely individualised. And it become, and therefore becomes really kind of heated and unpleasant and one of the things that i think is quite interesting about how in recent weeks the whole kind of COVID idiots shaming thing has been coming back for vengeance ever since the pubs reopened as you point out you know all these individual things being pointed out it's almost like you just fit it to your particular prejudices whether you're craig Whitaker and it's the muslims fault or you're nicola sturgeon and it's all the drunk young people's fault it just kind of fits to whatever narrative you happen to be propounding at that particular point point. and what's interesting on the one hand all of the things which have become big flashpoints people in the park people on Bournemouth Beach, people demonstrating with the Black Lives Matter movement. There's been no evidence linking those to any kind of rise in in cases and outbreaks and things. But still, the, the narrative goes on. And what I think is interesting at the moment as well is that we're at a point in which cases are low, in which it feels like, you know, we're certainly, you know, the height of the pandemic as it was in late March and early April is a distant memory now. And yet all of these tendencies to kind of shaming people has completely gone away. And there's, you know, even though there's been talk recently about potential second wave and outbreaks across the country, as Professor Carl Hennigan has been pointing out, there's been no real meaningful rise in cases recently, you know. And mm. if you actually look at it in relation to the ONS surveillance programme, they did suggest that cases were rising recently, but it's based on 24 positive cases among 30,000 people over the past two weeks. This is not huge. And again, we're seeing a lot of more test results coming back positive, but again, we're targeting test results in places where we know there are outbreaks. If you take into account the percentage of them being positive, again, you don't see this kind of rise. So I think it comes back to this point we've talked about a lot on this podcast, which is that the COVID its phenomenon, the public shaming the misanthropy, the puritanism on display has always had precious little to do with the evidence where we are at in the particular epidemic wave. And it's fundamentally been an expression of people's pre-existing prejudices towards the public or between certain sections of the public. And I think we just really need to bear that in mind because what we've got to be very concerned about is, as we've all talked about COVID accelerating all kinds of trends, whether it's towards working from home or the death of the high street or whatever, one that I'm really, really concerned about is this one towards atomization, towards treating people with suspicion, towards blaming people, assuming the worst about them. And it feels like in recent weeks, we've seen how the COVID discussion has accelerated all of that, leading us to a much more snipey and individuated kind of place.
0: Yeah, I mean, there was some research recently, and it was it was framed interestingly by the papers in a way that said the lockdown solidarity is over. And you think, well, there might have been solidarity over the crisis, but I don't think there was solidarity as a result of the lockdown. That if anything, the lockdown has broken us apart. And I think that has contributed to this problem. It's a self reinforcing dynamic. The more apart we are, the more suspicious we are of other people. The more suspicious we are of other people, the more we want to stay apart, stay our two meters away or stay in our house. And it just fuels this kind of hysteria about any kind of event that Someone who doesn't look like you or, you know, isn't a a immediate family member or friend that whatever they're doing, they're probably up to no good, you know, and they're probably doing something dangerous. And what is frustrating is you, you can completely understand why the government wants to. Place the blame on individuals and you can see why they want to continue ramping up the fear because as long as we're fearful of this disease, then we're not going to look at not only their failures in relation to COVID, but also, you know, the enormous backlog in the NHS in terms of, you know, cancer and heart treatments. We're going to ignore the fact that children have lost six months of their education and there doesn't seem to be very much progress in catching up on that. In Scotland, the exam system is in total disarray. The economy is another thing. You know, The economy is in the toilet. There are all kinds of things that you could see why the government would want to distract from their failures, want to keep people fearful and suspicious of each other. But why anyone in the public or why anyone in the media who should be holding the government to account would want to go down that route is a complete mystery to me.
1: I think part of the problem is that, to a certain extent, understandably, the whole process of how we deal with the virus has become moralized. So it's not just about whether wearing a face mask is a scientifically proven beneficial thing that will help us beat this disease, but it's become, are you a good person? Are you selfish or not? And it's very hard to argue with that. You know, people say, what's the problem? Why is it going to kill you to put something over your face or to not go to the pub or to not go to the beach? What, you know, don't you care about things bigger than your own self satisfaction? That's a completely wrong way of seeing it because there's been a sort of hostility to weighing up not just what works in this, but what is actually the the harms on the basis of both things. On the one hand, the risk of the virus. And on the other hand, the list of harms that you've just put out, Fraser, from you know the very serious issue of people with cancer not getting treatment. And in a, I've been told by a number of doctors that I know that in the next few months, they expect an onslaught of people who are terminally ill who could have been saved in the last few months. A second thing is a big rise in cases of young people who are seriously mentally ill and the suicide rate has tragically gone up. All of these things have to be weighed up. And this isn't about being a good person or a bad person. I think, as you rightly say, all that sort of slightly faux solidarity that was around the kind of clapping for the NHS at the start of the lockdown has really withered away. Because what we're faced with is this sort of empty social sphere where no one's talking to each other and everyone's really quite afraid and the tragedy is we shouldn't be afraid any longer because if you look at the science as tom says things seem to be getting more positive the challenge is how you combat the onslaught of negativity from the government from the media from scaremongers online and actually say the way we get out of this is by getting back to normal not the new normal but normal what we used to be (laughs) like when we used to go around and talk to each other
0: you're listening to the spiked podcast spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls all of our content is free we rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing for those of you who already donate to spiked we can't thank you enough it really means a lot to the team if you haven't already then why not consider giving spiked a donation you can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com The American Cancer Society recently put out new guidelines urging individuals with a cervix to attend cervical cancer screenings from the age of 25. The word people might normally use instead of individuals with a cervix is women. It's only women, after all, who have cervixes. Many feminists pushed back against this erasure of the word women, but the trans lobby and its supporters insisted that individuals with a cervix was more inclusive and gender-neutral – the Labour MP, Rosie Duffield, was labelled a transphobe for saying only women have cervixes. Ella, what are your thoughts on this?
1: Oh, it's very hard to not feel really down about all of this because the, these sporadic, often online, debates about gendered language and the use of it are so tiresome because the fact is the vast majority of people on this planet call people with a cervix a woman. And there's a really disingenuous debate happening around this because the argument from people who are pro-trans rights say, you know, you're just sort of being evil. You're not being inclusive because you're denying the fact that there are women who have transitioned to become men who would not like to be called women despite the fact that they have a cervix and are biologically female. And it's just bullshit because if you have ever dealt with a healthcare professional, you know that they use the right language for that individual. They're very sensitive about these things. Nurses and doctors are good people and they want to make their patients feel comfortable. So in any case, if someone does turn up with a cervix and doesn't want to be called a woman, their desires are generally met because we live in a decent and good society. But to suggest that you erase the word women, which is what's happening on the basis of being inclusive to such a small, a tiny, tiny, minuscule percentage of people is ridiculous. But actually worse than ridiculous, it's a real problem. And the the reason why it's a problem is because there are issues around women's biological reality to do with childbirth, to do with abortion, to do with contraception, campaigns that are still being fought at the moment in order to get women more rights around issues to do with their body, that if you stop using the word women and you stop even using concepts like sisterhood and solidarity among women and a kind of old school feminism that fought for those kinds of things... Then, you know, you're not dealing with the issue and actually it erases the idea of a politics that serves women. And that's a real problem. So when you're talking about using gendered language, there's a sort of individual approach to it, which is that most people will say, yeah, I'll call you whatever you like. If you're a decent person, you usually do that. But on a political scale, you have to resist this sort of march of the gender neutral obsessives because what it does is meaning that women lose out and we've got some real serious battles to fight still Mm. when it comes to sexism, especially in relation to our bodies. And I'd be damned if I have, you know, some trans obsessive campaigners telling me that I can't call people with a cervix a woman
0: I think also this case gives lie to the idea of inclusive language. you know inclusive language by its nature, I think is always exclusive it's designed to reveal the status of the speaker, it shows that they're an aware person or an aware organisation. And it has the kind of unintended consequence of not being understood by the vast majority Mm -hmm. of unaware people. And so in the case of cervixes, obviously this campaign is, is there to encourage women to have, you know, cervical tests. But there are polls that suggest that half of women don't actually know that they have a cervix. They don't know what a cervix is. So, you know, this is a case of kind of an attempt to use inclusive language that is excluding a substantial... Section of the population. And there's an interesting parallel with, I don't know if people have heard the word Latinx, which is supposed to be a gender neutral version of Latino or Latina to talk about, you know, Latin Americans. And it's it's widely used in universities. It's widely used among kind of social justice activists, but only 2% of actual Latino Americans ever, you know, want to use this term. So it's a kind of, again, supposed to be more inclusive, but it excludes the vast majority of people and it's basically most people are baffled by this kind of language. It doesn't communicate anything to them certainly.
2: Which is really a huge problem from a public health perspective as well. You need to communicate in clear terms, in universal terms, in terms that are understood by everybody and it just seems so strange that we're seeing this. We saw this a bit in relation to public health and the BLM protests. We had all these public health bodies come out and say that why BLM protests were actually COVID secure for no apparent reason. It just is fascinating how much can kind of be bent before this kind of ideology, you know, how much the kind of pre-existing responsibilities of something like even public health and science has to be kind of repurposed for the sake of a very small amount of activists. And I think you're dead right about the point about inclusive language being exclusive because a lot of these words they come up with are also unpronounceable aside from anything else. You know, you remember a while ago the discussions around Wim XN, which I think is how you pronounce it, so the E being replaced with an X, and International WimXN's Day. This is a word that if you just look at it, you'd have no idea what it meant. It looked like a typo, but at the same time this is something which, as you say, I think has precious little to do with trans people demanding to be included the vast majority of which I'm sure will not be offended by a call out saying that women need to come forward for cervical screening I I don't think the vast majority of them would care about that one iota it's largely amongst a lot of cis people if we're going to use that word who are using this as as you say it's a kind of game it's a kind of way of demonstrating your status and I just feel like it's something which really does need to be pushed Back against, Because on the one hand, there's no real demand for this, other than from a lot of people who want to signal their virtue. But on the other hand, it does have all of these unintended consequences. And it is only going to continually inflame these arguments around gender. I think it's telling and interesting that we're never really talking about MXN. We're never talking about people with penises, although you do see that from time to time. And that's something which I think is going to become very, very clear, but especially when we're talking about women's services, about women's issues around bodily autonomy, as Ella says, is something which we need to make very clear that this kind of politics is actually damaging to those kinds of discussions. It obfuscates things and it's obfuscating things and making things far more nasty on the basis of a handful of people who probably don't, aren't actually the identity that they're claiming to stand up for. And I think we need to remind people of that.
0: Ella?
1: So there are some things about differences between the sexes which are irrelevant and lots of lots of things don't come into your everyday life. You know, as a woman you don't experience life differently from a man most of the time. But when it comes to something like healthcare, cancer screenings, the issue of HPV, you know, pregnancy, whatever goes on in your life as a woman when it comes to your health, you are markedly different (laughs) to men. And the thing that I worry about is that I've already mentioned the political issues around bodily autonomy, but there are some parts of differentiating between the sexes which are positive for people's understanding of themselves. You know, it's a very nice feeling as a woman when you go into a clinic that's something specific to do with your reproductive system for example that it's mostly populated by women that women are there in the waiting room that you talk about being a woman with people you, t- you know you kind of gripe and you have a laugh and all those things particularly for young women it's quite a positive experience and I'm you know I've never been in the bloke side of the room but I'm sure it goes on there perhaps to a less chatty extent the thing I worry about is that we're making it out like it's bigoted and evil to assert that there are some areas of life in which differences between the sexes is a thing that helps development and is positive. And you've got this, every time one of these tweets or one of these stories comes out, I have this nervous feeling that you know every average woman in the UK is kind of looking at it and thinking, hang on, am I supposed to be immoral for wanting to be called what I've always called myself, which is a woman? So we do need to push back on these things, even if people do use the b-word and say that you're sort of regressive for arguing these things because it's quite important from a woman's perspective if I'm going to if I'm going to go there and say as a woman there are things about being a woman specifically healthcare being one of them which I think should be defended as as a place of difference.
0: You've been listening to The Spike Podcast. For more Spike content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.